So we're going to be continuing in our study in the book of John. John 18, starting in verse 28, going through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to, I was going to read out of the ESV, but I've got to bring it up with me. So we'll just read out of the, I use a different translation, so some of the wording might be a little bit different. And, uh, but let's work through this together. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they, being the Sanhedrin, led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Now, they did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, Well, you take him. And judge him according to your law. It is not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. And they said this, so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back to the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this of your own? Or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at Passover. So do you want me to, hand, to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who, who we learn about and listen to and are instructed by today, Lord. Thank you for your word. I pray that I would have no agenda in this sermon today except the, the agenda of your word and of you. I pray that the things that I speak will be your words. I pray that my demeanor today would be your love. I thank you, Lord, for this passage. I thank you, Lord, for Christ coming to testify to the truth. And we know that Jesus is the truth. I pray that as we work through this, Lord, that we'd have a a better understanding of, of who you are and how we, and what our place is in this world as believers. 
Pray that you would bless this time for your name and your glory and your praise and your honor until Christ is all and in all. Amen. It was the year 410 A.D. It was August. And King Alaric of the Visigoths had led his army through Italy to the city of Rome where he besieged it, he defeated it, and he sacked it. It had been 800 years since the city of Rome had fallen. And in this time, this, this, this ancient period, cities got sacked every other year. It was, you had the Roman Empire that, that marched around, putting down rebellions and taking over new territory. But the city of Rome itself had not been sacked for 800 years when the Gauls had sacked it which is an event that actually led to the Romans wanting to protect themselves, which led to them starting the, the empire itself. You know, the city of Rome was not the, the, the um, capital of the empire anymore. That had been moved to Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. But it was still the religious center, and it was the, known throughout the empire as the eternal city. You know, the importance of Rome to the identity of the, of the Roman citizens can't be understated. This was a huge deal that the city of Rome was sacked. And this major event is seen by many as the end of the Western Empire. As news spread of the fall of Rome throughout the empire, it reached a man by the, that we know as St. Jerome. He was the translator of, of the scriptures that we know as the Latin Vulgate. When he heard... That Rome had been sacked, he despairingly remarked, If Rome can perish, what can be safe? Now, Jerome is one of the two most important church fathers from the 4th and 5th centuries. His Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible was, was the Bible of the church for over a thousand years. And in the first 500 years of the church, he was one of only two men in the church history, who could read both Hebrew and Greek. His, his influence in, on church history can't be overstated. He was very, very important to the church. But in this time, at this moment, it seems as though his faith was more earthly than it was heavenly. This event actually led many to believe that the, the, the Roman Empire converting from paganism to Christianity is what is leading to its downfall. But not everybody was so saw the saw the events in this way. As refugees fled from from Europe across the Mediterranean Sea, they landed in northern Africa in a place called Hippo, where there was a a bishop of the Church of Hippo who watched these refugees come ashore. And they said it's there that he, he began formulating one of the most important works in Christian history known as the City of God. And that bishop was known as St. Augustine. This book, The City of God, paints a contrast between the City of God or the church the, the, that, that God is building, drawing people out of the world, and paints a contrast with the City of Men. Now, I want you to keep these two responses to the same event, one by Jerome and one by Augustine. Augustine seeing the events of this world as part of God's plan, and he did not despair, whereas Jerome allowed despair to take him. 
I want you to keep these responses in the back of our minds as we work through John 18. And here in John 18, we see Jesus leaving the first kangaroo court, the first kangaroo trial, just an unofficial, trying to figure out a way to get him killed trial of the, of the Sanhedrin. Illegal trial, as Pastor pointed out last week. And they lead him from there to Pontius Pilate. You know, there's two separate scenes here at play. One where Pilate is in conversation with the Jews and another where Pilate is in conversation with Jesus. And we're going to start, we're going to skip over the initial conversation between Pilate and the Jews and we're going to go right down to Pilate's conversation with Jesus. We're going to learn from Jesus and this, I believe, will set the stage for helping us understand the attitudes of Pilate and the Jews as we work through the rest of the passage. Now, the main theme of this passage today, I, as I understand it, is this. That the nature of Jesus' kingdom is truth. But we are not of the truth by our nature. And I have three points that I hope will help us break this down. And first, we're going to look at Jesus' claim of being a king of a kingdom that doesn't originate here on earth. Secondly, we'll see that the nature of this kingdom is, in fact, truth. And the subjects of those kingdoms are described as of the truth. And thirdly, we'll see how, Pi- how we, like Pilate and the Jewish leaders, apart from Christ, outside of Christ, are not of the truth and cannot recognize Christ. This should take about 45 minutes or so. So let's begin. Number one, Jesus is a king. And his kingdom does not originate here. We find this in verse 33 through 36. It says, Then Pilate went back to the headquarters and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own? Or have others told you about me? I am not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. What does it mean when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and then again further down, my kingdom is not from here? You know, one prominent view of understanding this, this passage is that there's two kingdoms. You have the heavenly kingdom, which is everything spiritual, and you have the earthly kingdom, which is everything physical. And, it is, and, and God is the ruler of the heavenly kingdom. Satan is the ruler of the earthly kingdom. And the goal of the Christian life, then, is to escape the physical and get into the spiritual. That actually is more of what we call Gnosticism. It was an ancient belief that, it was a dualistic belief where the physical is bad and the the earthly is good. And that, it it may not be Gnosticism, but it has that flavor to it. And I really don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't talking about escaping the world or disengaging culture. What he's talking about is having an eternal, heavenly view of life. Not just living for our worldly existence, our personal comfort and success in the here and now. Jesus isn't claiming that the earth and the physical is bad and the spiritual is what is good and we need to try to get away from the physical and into the spiritual. That's not what he's claiming at all. 
You know, Pastor Jamie has said, we, we were working through this passage together on Monday, and he made the remark, Jesus came to make all things new, not make all new things. Yes, this world is full of sin, and the, there, there's pain and there's struggle here on this earth. But Romans eight eighteen through 21 says this, For I have considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, the physical, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. To to emphasize this point, think about who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to a Roman prefect set up by a Roman government, and he was a, a Roman citizen who wasn't from Judea, but he had been placed by a foreign government to have jurisdiction over Judea. What this means is that Jesus isn't telling Pilate, I have a kingdom, but doesn't have any authority or effect here. And saying that his kingdom is not of this world, Jesus is claiming not a geopolitical kingship, but a messianic kingship. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. So ultimately, Christ is the ruler of this earth, not Satan. And it's because of this that the authority Christ uh, is because of this authority that Christ has that we can boldly go to all the nations. This is a transcultural, transethnic, translingual, and transnational kingdom that God is establishing. If we go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 11, we find a story of the Tower of Babel. Within a few generations of the flood, the descendants of Noah, who are all of one culture and one language, they're one people. They come together to build a tower to show their greatness. It was at Babel that because of the pride of men's heart, God divided the world into people and nations and tribes through the scrambling of their language. But Christ, through his humility on the cross, brought these divided peoples back together regardless of their ethnicity, nationality, race, language, or culture. You know, the cultural differences and the language differences may still affect the church, but that will all end when Christ does make all things new at the end of time. The kingdom of Christ may not be from here, but it is very much seen and felt here on earth, but it finds its authority in heaven. Do, do, do we understand how fantastic this is, that we have a kingdom from heaven that we are a part of as, as believers? This means that we can go boldly and teach all nations and preach the gospel because it is impossible for this word to be thwarted 
It is impossible for that the message that we preach of Scripture can be subverted. A kingdom whose authority is based on earth can fall on earth. Think about Rome. Think about all the major uh, empires of the ancient times. They were all based here, and they all ended here. But a kingdom that is based in heaven cannot fall. This is why Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that it wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus is not building a kingdom of, with borders and cities and a nation as we think of it today. His kingdom transcends all of that. Therefore, there is no need for the followers of Christ to band together and seek to defend some spot on the map that we call church. There are some Christians who feel that this passage is teaching that we, a non-resistance or pacifistic view. Now, I, I, I think that those are interesting conversations that we do need to have. We need to work through Scripture. But I don't feel like the context of this passage that we're working through teaches that. But we'll look at number two. The nature and the guiding principle of that kingdom is truth. Verse 37 and 38. Pilate says, You are a king then. Jesus says, You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what is this truth that Jesus testifies to? John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, being Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John, 30, John 5, 36 says, But I have a greater testimony than that of John because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. John fifteen twenty six says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus is the truth that he and the Spirit and John the Baptist and the apostles and God the Father and the works of Christ all testify to. Now, but who, who are the people that Jesus describes as of the truth? And how does one become of the truth? Now, if I were to ask you, what way does the New Testament identify believers as being believers the most? What is the predominant way that we are identified as believers in Scripture? Could say Christian, could say believer, could say disciple. Actually, the number one way that we are identified as believers in Scripture is the, is the phrase, in Christ. Paul uses the language of being in Christ over and over and over again throughout his epistles. Just read the first two chapters of Ephesians, and you'll read it over and over and over, and you'll see it there. And this is how Paul describes being a believer. If we are in Christ, then we are of the truth. And if we are of the truth, that means 
our mode of operation, our way of life, the, princip- the guiding principle by which, the, by which we live is truth. Ephesians 4, 20-25 says this, You came to know Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, one created according to Christ's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each to one another, his neighbor, because we are members of one another. The truth is Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. And the truth is from Jesus. This means that with love and humility, we must speak the truth of Scripture to one another. It may mean that we have to go to each other and bring Scripture to bear on one another's sins. It may mean, and it does not mean, that gossip is okay so long as it is true. If you continue down in Ephesians chapter 4, continuing the same line of thought, Paul warns this. No foul language should come from your, mouth, from your mouth, but only what is good for building someone up in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for that day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Bitterness, anger, wrath, slander, shouting. These are the foul language that Paul is saying to not come out of your mouth. Now, this is something that I've, I found fascinating when I, was, when I was working through this. The Greek word for slander is blasphema. I'll let you think about where, where, what English word we get from that. What this means is to, to slander one another, to gossip about one another, to share news that isn't ours to share, which there's more to gossip than just that, is to blaspheme one another. But more importantly, it is to blaspheme Christ himself. And there is more that needs to be said on this point, but we'll dig more into the practical implications at the end. We'll come back to this later. For now, we will see how being apart from Christ, we are like the Jewish leaders in Pilate and not of the truth. And as I said at the beginning, I wanted to set up, set the stage for seeing and learning, by seeing and learning from Christ, and then step back and evaluate the attitudes and the reasonings of Pilate in the Jews. And how apart from Christ, we, we are like them. And first, we'll see the dishonesty of the, Drew, the Jews. They are not of the truth. And then we will see the dismissiveness of Pilate. And finally, we'll see that they are both earthly focused. They do not understand that Jesus' kingdom is not from here. Verse 28 through 32 says this. And they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And it was early morning. 
and they did not enter the headquarters themselves. Otherwise, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So Pilate told them, Well, you take him and judge him according to your law. And they said, It is not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Now, as I read this, is it just me, or does it feel like the Jewish leaders are being evasive? Pilate comes out. It's early in the morning. He gets woke up by this raucous crowd of Jewish leaders, and they're all out there wanting, demanding a hearing with him. But they won't go inside, inside the courtyard because they don't want to be defiled during the holiest week of the Jewish calendar, the, the week of Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're outside demanding to see him. So he gets up and he comes outside. And he asks a pretty reasonable question. He says, what charge do you bring against this man? To which they reply, If he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. They never answer the question. They deflect the question. We know why they wanted to have Jesus killed. John tells us in John eleven thirty-eight through 50. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man does, is doing many signs? His works are testifying of him and that makes him nervous. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You are not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. They want Jesus dead to keep their place. They want to maintain their position of power and influence. Yet, with Pilate, they're acting as if they're concerned with civil unrest. They're acting as if they're in it for the best interest of the Romans, when in reality, we know that they're in in it for their own interest. And it's interesting that they pretend like they are acting in the best interest of Rome when the guy that they paid to betray Jesus is believed by many to be a zealot. Zealots were, we would know them as the first terrorists. They were political insurrectionists. They, they violently fought against Roman rule. And it's believed that Judas Iscariot, Iscariot is believed to come from the word that means daggermen, because they would carry a dagger and they would kill traitors with them. So Judas Iscariot is the man that they paid And then, after Pilate questions Jesus, and he doesn't find any reason to charge him, they ask for Barabbas. Luke tells us, in Luke 23, 19, he says that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. So here here are the Jewish leaders acting as if they're in the best interest of Rome, paying off an insurrectionist and asking that an insurrectionist be given to them so that they can have this guy that they claim is an insurrectionist killed. Seems a little dishonest to me. 
It's plain that they're in it for their own self-interest. Now, Pilate, on the other hand, seems like he wants nothing to do with any of it. Here it is early in the morning. He's woken up, and there's these Jewish leaders demanding that he kill somebody. In Luke's gospel, they, they, Luke tells us that they tell Pilate that he is misleading our nation, opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. And from the get-go, Pilate doesn't seem to buy it. And he tries to get rid of the whole thing. In verse 31, Pilate says this, Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. But, the priests, but they persist, saying, we, can't, we don't have the legal authority to execute anyone. So he questions Jesus. And even with Jesus, he feels dismissive. So after asking Jesus if he were a king, and Jesus responds, are you asking on your own, or has others told you about me? Pilate says this, your nation and your chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? It's as if Pilate is telling Jesus, I'm not with you people. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want anything to do with this. I want you guys to handle it. This is between you and them. But here we are. So what's your story? And then after Jesus tells Pilate that that those who are of the truth listen to him, Pilate dismisses the whole concept of truth by asking, what is truth? So why would Pilate be dismissive and the Jews dishonest? We see why the the Jews are doing it, because they're, they're looking to keep their spot, their influence, their power. They're focused on earthly power. Pilate was dismissive because why would he care about some Jewish squabble? He was the governor, the embodiment of Rome to these people. He had all the power and there was nothing they could do about it. You see, they were both like the men that we read in the passage for the call to worship. Psalm 17, 14 says this, With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men whose portion... Men of this world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied and they leave their surplus to their children. Their portion is in this life. Their focus is on this world. To Pilate, why does he care if Jesus is a king of heaven or something? Pilate is a ruler here in this world. And that's what matters. Jesus said something about truth, but why should Pilate worry about truth? When all the truth, the only truth that matters is results, regardless of whether or not they are achieved honestly. Case in point, in just a few hours, Pilate will condemn a man he knows to be innocent, Jesus, to death, purely for the reason of keeping peace and not having to deal with it anymore. Just to make people happy, he just condemns an innocent man and he knows it. To Pilate, the only truth that mattered was maintaining control over his subjects and keeping the status quo, which really wasn't all that different from the Jewish leaders. That's why they wanted their that's why they wanted Jesus dead as well. Keep the status quo. Maintain their position. Aside from Christ, everyone in this whole situation is out for their own personal gain. But don't we do the same thing? 
We tell of our achievements, and we exaggerate the facts to make ourselves look better. Maybe it's not a big exaggeration, but is it truthful? And if we are of the truth, our lives are lived by truth, is it truthful? We spread rumors and lies about others, all the while saying, I would never do that, when in reality, by not seeking one another's good, like we talked about in point two, we are not living as those who are of the truth, which means we are denying Christ who bought us. When it comes time to vote or political discussion, we blast someone from the opposition for moral failings. All the while we ignore or dismiss or explain away the moral failings of our guy. Why? He'll pass the laws I like. and He'll stick it to the other side. That's not honest. That's not true. That's not of Christ. When we get into political or theological discussions, we're more interested in winning and crushing the other side than we are in bringing the truth of Christ, Scripture, and the gospel to bear on whatever issue that we're talking about. Oh, but, but I don't involve myself in political discussions or theological discussions. That just causes tension. I'm just trying to keep the peace. To me, that sounds a lot like Pilate. Now, I'm not advocating an aggressive or argumentative approach, but what I am saying is that Jesus is not teaching us to disengage from culture around us. Jesus is not teaching us to ignore sin or keep the peace for merely the sake of avoiding conflict. We can get so wrapped up in being right or keeping the peace because we are so focused on the here and now that we miss Christ totally like they did. Think about it. The, the people who will in just, in just one chapter, chapter 19, be screaming, crucify him. The same people who won't walk into the headquarters of Pilate because they're afraid of defiling themselves for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those same people are the most studied biblical scholars of their day. They are the religious leaders. They know the scripture better than anybody. And yet, when the true Passover, the true Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb, the perfect Passover lamb, the, the, the one who the Passover pointed to, the true bread of life is standing in front of them, they want him dead because he's, he's threatening their place. He's threatening their authority. And when Pilate, Pilate dismisses the very idea of truth, he did so while staring truth itself in the face. They missed Christ entirely because they were so wrapped up in this world. Are we so wrapped up in this world and our own comfort that we miss Christ? If we are in Christ, therefore of the truth, are we allowing Christ to live through us a life that is marked by truth? In John 17, 17, in that beautiful high priestly prayer of Christ that pastor walked us through a couple weeks ago, Jesus says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. 
I sanctify myself for them so that they may be sanctified by the truth. Sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit makes us like Christ. Jesus says that the word of God is truth and we are sanctified by the word of God. The way we come to be made like the one in whom we are, Jesus, is in large part by being in his word, knowing his word. This word is truth. The way we speak the truth to one another in love is by knowing the scripture and speaking the truth of scripture into one another's lives. This means that this is what Jesus means when he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. This is where we find it. Speaking the truth of Scripture means calling up a brother or meeting him for breakfast in the morning and working through Scripture together. It means taking a younger believer under your wing and growing together and learning together on how to disciple others. It's seeking out an older believer and learning from them and studying scripture with them and in turn taking those things that you learn from them to teach others. It's reminding a a brother or sister who's spreading rumors about another brother or sister that doing so is not building building one another up in the Lord and it is slandering them and blaspheming Christ. It's apologizing for being the one who was spreading the rumors. It's coming alongside a young teen and helping them understand how, how this scripture is true and how to use that to walk through life even though the peer pressure at school is so hard. It's a young mom calling up another, uh, another mom and praying with her on a rough day as the kids are seemingly unhinged and melting down. It's, man, it's a man at work in a factory or on the job site or in the office being one who is known for being consistent in their judgments and in their speech. One who refrains from bad-mouthing and causing or facilitating discontent. Believe me, that one I need to know. That one I need to preach to myself over and over. It even means that when we see a fellow brother or sister in Christ living in sin, that we prayerfully, humbly, lovingly, and unapologetically go to them and call them to repent of that sin based on Scripture. Living in Christ and in truth means that when we are approached by a brother or sister about patterns of sin, that we don't make excuses for our behavior, but we go to the scripture and prayer and we repent. Living in the truth of Christ as citizens of his kingdom means that we will stand apart from this world. And most of the times we will be at odds with it. Jesus says, the world hated you because they hated me. Having a focus oriented towards the eternal kingdom means that when we see the events of this present age, that we will see the events of this present age as opportunities for the gospel, not reasons to isolate ourselves 
being a part of the eternal kingdom founded on the truth, gives us the confidence to engage because we know that our king will not fail and his word can never be refuted. We can stand with St. Augustine as the world we know it falls apart and not panic. And we can encourage those who, like St. Jerome's faith, may falter at times. Colossians 3, 1-4 says this. We'll read this in closing. So you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory.